Thank you for tuning in to Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today I'm talking to David DeZoritz, who spearheaded the previous work on the special editions and the first two Star Wars prequels. This is such a fun episode, a deep dive into what it was like working at Skywalker Ranch while they were changing how movies were being made forever. And also stick around for a John Knoll egg toss picnic story. So, uh, this is Talking Bay 94, episode 91, David DeZoritz. I was looking at the Padres previs before this just because it's still one of my favorite with the puppets and the storyboard inserts and just like it is just such a, a crazy piece of movie history, really. And it's still it's just still a lot of fun to watch. Yeah, that was, you know, the puppets were done. It was the Sebulba puppet, right. that bad guy in the Padres. And characters were, were back then still really, really hard to do. I mean, they're hard to do now, but they were digital characters. At Star Wars made massive, massive strides on. Uh, Phantom Menace did. Mm-hmm. And the, I guess I'm just getting into it, but <laughs> right away. But the, so it was, it was a little bit challenging for me to quickly do characters in Previs. So that's why Robert Barnes and Ben Burt did that puppet and went and shot that green screen footage mm-hmm. for me to composite in. It really helped. Now, a year later, I was able to do character work much better for um, all that fight at the end the gungan mm-hmm. army battle with all the bubble shield and everything mm-hmm. i did a bunch of work uh and my staff did a bunch of work on that using characters but it was and we actually mo-capped stuff i think i did some of the first mo-cap oh, ever. that's great so see, see the problem is is i've got story after story with you i at one point i did mo-cap it was a dance thing there, we had to do a little, at the end parade of Phantom Menace, there was a little dance. Mm-hmm. And these guys had to do, these Gungans had to do a little bit of a move. And the mocap was me, I think Jeff Light, who was the mocap, motion capture supervisor at the time. George, Lucas, and George's daughter. <laughs> so I'm, I'm not entirely sure if that mocap ended up in the shot in the film. But at least for the previs, it was... <laughs> George was, was mo-capping with us. That's so great. And he had he had fun yeah. with it. He had fun with it. But I've got I've got stories about working on the working in ILM. I've got stories about working on the Star Wars prequels, but I've also got all those other kind of strange stories about just being in the Star Wars universe. Mm-hmm. At one point, for some reason I was having a big birthday. I was turning 25 or I was turning something like that. And everybody on the crew in the art department and down in the post-production, I say down because it was downstairs in the basement. Uh-huh. They, they did a scavenger hunt. For uh-huh. me. And, and part of the movie, part of the production of star Wars basically stopped for half a day uh-huh. so that everybody could watch me walk, run around Skywalker ranch and be completely clueless about where I was supposed to go next. That's great. <laughs> it, it culminated in me I was just, I'm fairly bald now, but I'm, I was just about to lose my, starting to lose my hair. And it culminated in me having to go up to George, this was part of the scavenger <laughs> hunt, and say, I've, I've always really admired your hair. Do you think I can have some of it? <laughs> and, and George was in on the joke with everybody. Yeah. And it was just, there was just little things like that. And each day when you drive to the ranch and you go in, you're, you're like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm here. I can't believe this is happening. And then I've got stories about how what we were thinking during the production, everybody, everybody had a problem with Jar Jar when Phantom Menace came out. 
And, and I always was sort of surprised by that. And I knew that we knew that Jar Jar was annoying. The entire point of Jar Jar was that he's annoying. Everybody else in the movie talks for two hours about how annoying that guy <laughs> right. is. That's, that's, he was supposed to be. But I was surprised, I think we who worked on the film were surprised that that's what people reacted to really strongly. When we were more expecting people to react strongly to other things. For example, at one point, Qui-Gon, Liam Neeson's character Qui-Gon, I think, goes up to Anakin's mother and says, who was the father? And she says, there was no father which means it was immaculate conception. Right. And this basically kind of hints that Darth Vader is a Christ-like right. figure. So we thought that they were going to be at the gates of the ranch, you know, people were going to be at the gates of the ranch with pitchforks and torches. And nobody seemed to get it. Nobody yeah. really focused on it. Instead, they were all talking about how much how annoying Jar Jar was. So there was a lot of a lot of surprises, um, but there was a lot of interesting stuff I can give you about, you know, what we were all thinking at the time. The short version is we all were just so amazed and felt so blessed that we could be working on a project that we thought was was really important that got all of us involved in the film industry, working with other talented people in a beautiful place. When you work for, for George and Rick McCallum, you're protected from a lot of, you don't have to deal with any of the BS that happens in Hollywood of this this studio executive says this but this one wants this and the star wants this you you have a very clear chain of command so everything about the experience was fantastic honestly i mean there was we worked our ass off there was long hours and i always tell people that at 10 o'clock at night you have to pay 65 dollars to get a cold pizza delivered to the <laughs> ranch because there's no there's no restaurants, uh, no food service right. that's open there. And I and I had a lot of $65 cold pizzas. <laughs> that's great. I mean, because the thing is, prequels especially have changed how movies are made. And that and that is becoming more and more clear as, as the years go on. And especially as the fans like me, I mean, to date myself, like I was eight years old when Phantom Menace came out. So, of course, Jar Jar, like I was Jar Jar for Halloween and it wasn't like a big deal. You know what I mean? And well, that's the that's the thing is because it's all the old Star Wars fans that I shouldn't say old. It's all the original Star Wars fans that didn't like Jar Jar. But George had had children at that point. And I actually think that his son, Jet, may have named Jar Jar. I don't know that to be a fact. Yeah. Who was young at the time. So he he said this is this is really a movie for a new generation of kids it's not necessarily to satisfy the original star wars fan base but you're right what you say that 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 the movies kind of changed filmmaking george's is really needs to be remembered as the father of digital filmmaking from the edit droid which became an avid they would make laser discs out of all of the dailies from movies and edit from laser disc it was (laughs) crazy and that became that became the avid and then he was he had to push and push sony to make a digital camera and they had a few shots on phantom menace that were shot with this digital camera so so i talked about the avid which is post-production production Production was using using a digital camera and i was the pre-visualization the pre-production change from just analog to also using digital technology. Right. So I can tell you a little bit about how, what I worked on in ILM. I did do some work. Um, I don't know if you saw it on new hope special edition and the Jedi special edition. 
Um, I can't remember if I did any on Empire. And and then I remember when we got the call at ILM that George was it was the, the head of ILM, Patty Blau, at the time, came into the art department and called a meeting and said, George is has now sort of seen Jurassic Park and all the other digital technology that we've made strides on, and he now has decided that it's time to get back into the Star Wars franchise. He is looking for artists. Those of you who are here at ILM are welcome to apply. You won't be penalized by us if you decide you want to go up to the ranch and work with George. And we looked around the room and, and everybody kind of like uh, their eyes got a little bit sparkly. <laughs> and then she left. She left and everybody went, ah, you know, everybody was totally playing right. cool. <laughs> well, it sounds interesting, but I don't know. Maybe it would be good, but I've got a good thing here. I don't know if I want to get my hopes up. I don't know if I want to go down that path. And I'm telling you, nobody left the ILM art department that night before two o'clock in the morning. Cause we were all working on our portfolio. That's, That's great. Your path to working, especially in the previous department for, for the first two prequels is very interesting to me. If only because you did start off as a concept artist. And I think that merging of both art and technology is what serves the prequels so well. And I'd first love to just talk about your early work at ILM because that IMDb list on its own is crazy where you have, you know, Jurassic Park and Forrest Gump and Mission Impossible and these movies that, even now, like you were saying, are just impacting kind of this legacy of, of creating movies in a brand new way. And I'd love to first talk about your early work. Sure. I was really lucky to get an internship with Lucasfilm when I was, I think, a sophomore or a junior in college. And it was it was so incredibly nerdy of me. I remember walking into the, at Skywalker Ranch, the boardroom where they had all the quarter interns for that session assembled and they were gonna the the hr coordinator was was telling the interns what was expected of them and i walked in wearing a suit and tie <laughs> when everybody else was in shorts because mm -hmm. i was taking this so seriously right. and the other interns were great but they were there and they did their four hours a week or two hours a day and i was so adamant that I was going to do a good job at this that I probably spent 12 or 14 hours a day, mm -hmm. even though I was only required to spend four hours a day during the internship, I put school on hold and, and, you know, they, they said to us, guys, this is an internship. You are here to learn, get your credits, but you do not ask for a job at the end of this. <laughs> the entire point of this is that you learn and then you go back to whatever you're doing. And I, absolutely broke that rule. <laughs> I said right at the right at the beginning of it, I'm I'm going to make myself invaluable so that you guys hire me. Mm. And they did in the ILM art department. I started out as just an art assistant. So I would take the fantastic art from Doug Chang and Ty Ellingson, Mark Moore, Eric Tiemens, Claudia, uh, Benton Jew was there, all these great artists and I would be, they would do the art and I would be the one who would mount it on foam core. <laughs> that was one of my primary responsibilities. Uh -huh. And I did that to the point where I must've inhaled so much spray glue in, in a couple of years <laughs> that my lungs are shot. <laughs> but it was great because I learned so much from them about this. It was um, a real crash course in, in what good concept art could be. <laughs> but I also was a bit of a computer nerd and had... Um, had the ability to 
solve a lot of computer problems for them and start doing some of the computer art. You know, at the time, the computer graphics department at ILM was fairly new and very separated from everything else at ILM. The vast majority of the work was still done traditionally with cameras and optical printers and miniatures and traditional matte painting on glass. And there were a few Macintosh computers that were in the art department so people could do Photoshop (laughs) 0.5 and... Because John Knoll right. was was there. Of you course. had a connection to the to, famous John right. Knoll. Somehow got somehow got Photoshop on those computers. Yeah, and it was great. Scott Squires, who was also a visual effects supervisor, he created a program called Commotion that was that was like an After Effects. So we we had great fresh technology, but the art guys were traditionally trained pencil, paper, marker, mm-hmm. and the computer graphics guys were seen as kind of the nerdy but certainly up-and-coming guys in a in, over in C building in the basement, completely different. The computer guys didn't talk art very well, and the art guys didn't talk computer very well. And I managed to be able to bridge that conversation between those two groups a little bit. And I think that that made, made me valuable to the ILM art department. So it was fantastic because I, I in the ILM art department each art director is working on a different project that's in the facility and I got to help with all of them so I was able to work on just like you said a little bit of Jurassic a little bit of Forrest Gump all of these different projects and and I got to be involved in them so I'm, it's, it's very rare for somebody to have be able to work on 10 films over the span of two years but I was lucky enough to be able to do that and they were great Great things to work on. I'm really proud of the work in in Forrest Gump, um, you know. And it was it was really the art director Doug Chang who I'm sure you know who who did that. But just being able to help him out in little things. Yeah. And he came to me one day and said, "We need to do a digital version of uh, the University of Alabama football stadium. Can you find what that looked like in 1960 whatever?" Uh-huh. Boy, that was hard to do. I couldn't even get a hold of um, the University of Alabama, but my my father-in-law knew somebody who went to the University of Alabama, and they we called them, and they sent me a yearbook. That's great. Oh, that's great. <laughs> and and that and that was the reference that ended up being in that Forrest Gump Stadium sequence. So little things like that 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 are small contributions, but it was fun to be able to work on them. So I started to to know John Knoll. Mm-hmm as everybody did. And he brought in early versions of Photoshop. And then he was the one who said to me, Hey David, maybe you should start doing what we're calling pre-visualization. Nobody here at ILM is really doing it. It's, it's just using very rough computer animation to plan things. Mm -hmm. And we had to go and get a program, two programs that would run on the Macintosh computers that we had in the art department to be able to allow me to do this. I remember one program specifically being over a thousand dollars. It was like $1,500 and everything that at ILM that cost over a thousand dollars, you needed to have approved by the head of the company. Well, she actually had said when I tried to get this modeling program approved for the art department, she said, no, this was 
a computer modeling program and that belongs in the computer department and you're in the art department and never the twain shall meet. So it was funny that even at ILM, there were some people who didn't quite understand how powerful the computer filmmaking revolution was going to be. I ended up having to go and find a a company that would sell me that piece of software split into two $750 purchase orders so that I could not have to have it approved by the head of the company. But I eventually got it that way. And I started doing um, little bits of computer modeling, very rough, very uh, blocky by today's standards. But that that turned into uh, Ty coming to me at one point and saying, I think it was Ty, who said, uh, hey, George is doing a little bit of work on the special editions. And I ended up doing a pre-visualization of the do-back scene where George wanted to, the, the stormtroopers are searching the desert for 3PO and R2. And George wanted the, to, to be like a more extensive search. So we added these digital do-back creatures. And I did a previs of that shot first, two shots, I think. I think that was maybe not some of the first previs that was ever done ever, but it was really close. Right. And then when, and, and, and then after that, John Knoll was uh, the visual effects supervisor on the first Mission Impossible movie. Mm-hmm. And they had an idea for this sequence at the end of the movie where Tom Cruise's character is on the top of the of the TGV high-speed train going in the English Channel. Mm-hmm. And it was a, a, a sequence that was hard for studio executives to visualize. So John said, hey, why don't you do the previs thing that you did for those 102 shots in the special edition and do it for this whole sequence? That was the first time previs was ever used for at that scale for a sequence, mm-hmm. I think. And the work that I did there was um, just horrible by today's standards just awful uh-huh. it was it was slow it took forever there was no there was no expressions on the character uh the trees were that were flying by were basically big blocks but it told the story and when eventually the head of ilm came down and said george was interested in starting up an art department for the star wars prequels that sequence was really the thing that I had on my demo reel mm-hmm. that that Doug Chang showed to Rick McCallum, and Rick McCallum, I think, showed to George, and it clicked for them that that was how they needed to plan for the pod race. Uh-huh. Because the pod race, if you read the script of Phantom Menace, the pod race was, it was basically like one page. It <laughs> It essentially just said pod race happens here. It was all ideas that was in George's head, ideas that were in George's head, but but nothing had really been fleshed out yet. Doug had done some fantastic paintings. There was some storyboards that were starting from Ian and, and I think Benton Jew, but it was not really fleshed out. I eventually pre-vised a version of the pod race that was edited and by I think Ben Burt and and Martin Smith, and it eventually became, we had a 25-minute version of the pod race at one point. (laughs) The version that ended in the film, I think, is about nine and a half minutes, and I think three laps. We had a 25-minute version at one point. (laughs) George just loved, he he, he loved that way of of filmmaking, Mm. of having a really small crew, then you can just 
edit things together quickly and roughly. And, um, so, so we went from just, you know, doing two shots in the special edition to a 25 minute previs of one scene. And we did many scenes right. in Phantom Menace, by the way, I, when I was listening, this is an aside, I was listening to your, uh, <laughs> I was listening to your podcast with Ty and you guys were talking about the changes in the special edition. I was in the room with George um, and I think John Knoll and Dennis Murin and maybe Alex Laurent were in the room too, or Alex, um, I forget his last name, when when George told us about having um, Greedo shoot before Han. <laughs> uh-huh. And, uh, and you know, we were all like, oh, really? <laughs> um, that's a surprise. And then there was another point that we were all sort of surprised when George talked to us about the midi chlorians mm-hmm. that there were there were um actual biological creatures that the force was related to and that was one thing that we were all sort of surprised about but you know what when george lucas tells you <laughs> that this is his idea you you go uh, okay you know more than i do we will do it <laughs> it was it was really amazing to be able to be there and witness all that stuff the Phantom Menace was the best working experience I had in the film industry. I was on it for four and a half years, which is extremely long. I was the the third person hired in the art department. Uh, it was first Doug Chang and then Tara Whitlatch, who's this phenomenal creature designer. You know, she did all of these other drawings at one point when she was at... She, did, she drew so many more characters than actually ended up in the film. I think they may have ended up in a book mm-hmm. that she did, like Creatures of Star Wars. But at one point, we had out on the table, all she had out on the table, all these fantastic designs. And George was like, okay, we'll use this one, this one, this one, and this one. And somebody said, okay, George, we need names for these creatures. <laughs> and she, and, and George took all of the people that were standing around the table. So it was like me, Doug, Terrell, and took our names and jumbled them up. <laughs> So the name Dozoritz has D-O-Z-O-R-E-T-Z, and I think it became the Terrazod. Uh-huh. So we have, all of us there have Star Wars creatures named oh, after us. That's so great. George was really fun and playful that way, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And I mean, it comes across in the, the films particularly heavy with previs. It's a lot more common now, but it's possible that Star Wars fans and not filmmaking fans might be still a little bit confused about what the whole thing is. So pre-visualization is using the same computer animation technology that you use to make, for example, the digital dinosaurs look perfect at the end of the filmmaking process. We're moving that up to the pre-production process and using it kind of as animated storyboards, even 3D animated storyboards, where we can very quickly and efficiently try out different shots. Mm-hmm. and and see if they work and edit them together and add a little bit of music and sound effects to find out if the energy's there. So that's what we did for the pod race so much. Yeah. Because um, there was no other real way to do it. Pre-visualization is, is this great pre-production technology, but one of the hardest things about it is knowing when to stop because you really want to use it as as something that informs the filmmaking, but it doesn't take over the process and 
You don't want to be on set and have to do the previs. You don't want the post-production to not have any creativity in it. So the previs is really meant to be a, a great blueprint, but you have to know where to stop. And one of the sort of rules as we were inventing this process, one of the rules we gave ourselves was, okay, keep the previs really rough. Don't do textures. Don't do motion blur. Don't do shadows. All those things are are visually fun to look at, but they're not really what is the shot about at its most basic form. And when I did the pre-visualization for Mission Impossible, it didn't have any of those things. Then I was asked to do the pre-visualization for the pod race. The pod race has these floating engines and floating pods that are shooting across the desert at 500 miles an hour. And how do you know how fast they go and how do you know they're floating, for example? Well, the floating is determined by the fact that there's not a contact shadow between the bottom of the engine and the ground. You see the shadow, but it's not the, the engine's not touching the shadow. The speed is determined by how fast something's going, how much blur it has, for example, or how fast the ground is moving underneath it, which is determined by the texture. So these rules that I made for myself on Mission Impossible, no shadows, no textures, no motion blur, are rules that I instantly had to break for working on the pod race. Because <laughs> I had to put in I had to put in shadows, I had to put in motion blur, I had to put in textures. So yeah. it made it all a little bit a little bit harder and a little bit slower. Here's how fast it's going by camera, here's how fast the camera's traveling over the ground. Um so it was it was great to be able to work on these little filmmaking tools little filmmaking things and and to find out what would work best. You know, at one point when I had my first meeting with George at the third floor of Skywalker ranch, he loved the idea of the pod race, but he didn't quite really know me that well. Mm -hmm. And my background, my, my education was, was not in film production. I went to college and studied film theory and criticism. And we watched Hitchcock movies and Howard Hawks movies and John Ford movies and, and I was really full of all that kind of knowledge. Well, at one point when he was describing the pod race and describing the environment that it would take place in, George was talking about the mountains out in the distance. And he said, I want the mountains to look a little bit like this, but not like that. It should sort of look like a... And he trailed off. And I got kind of ballsy. And I, I tried to answer for or finish his sentence. And I said, <laughs> uh-huh. the mountains look like a John Ford movie. And he went, yes, exactly. And, and I think that was a really important moment for George, knowing that this 22-year-old kid, who was allegedly a computer wizard at the time, actually knew a little bit something about film and could speak a little bit of his language. I think that helped George get a little bit more comfortable with me, because I was able to tell him what a Monument Valley John Ford movie environment would look like, or not tell him, but... <laughs> right. under, understand him when he was I mean because his language is so based in old films I'm sure that was very very helpful even I mean the, the classic example of course is before Previs he was splicing together you know what was Battle yeah. of Britain um, footage just to just to make sure a dogfight looked up to par so I, I, it's very interesting seeing where he came from and, and how he was able to, to implement so much well you know and I tried to implement his thinking in my hiring too, when I hired crew to work on the star Wars prequels, I loved it when people, they they didn't need to necessarily know which 
button on the keyboard to push to get something to do something that could be learned but i also really wanted to hire people that knew film language that knew about um mesonson and composition and pacing and what chiaroscuro lighting was and and if i could get people that knew film language at least in a way that george would be able to have faith in what they were doing then i could teach them what buttons to push and besides the software changes frequently anyway so yes the software and and knowing how to use the tool is important but what we really wanted to do was focus on the drawing not on the pencil so i i kind of made that tried to make that that part of my philosophy when hiring people to come work on star wars the last act was full of previs. There was the really rough character previs we did of the Gungan battle. There was the previs of the space battle. There was some previs and a lot of post-vis where we, we kind of made visual effects work temporarily for shots that were already filmed of the assault in the... Um, mm-hmm. the Naboo castle area. We yeah. previsited the entire thing with the Senate. Corey Jones worked f- uh, with me and did that stuff. He was brought in and it was pod race previs is your responsibility and got the whole thing done. That was uh, one of those environments that was so heavy from a data point of view that we had to sit there and if the, if the task was, okay, that floating disc needed to move a little bit to the left you would click it and drag it and have to wait 30 seconds for it to show up over there Uh using the fastest computers that we had at the time so the senate was fully prevised you know what a lot of people don't know i actually was was sort of made a visual effects supervisor for about 115 final shots when when the previs and postvis schedule was done and we were starting to wind down in the art department we had i had a crew of five or six guys and computers and nothing really to do at that point so rick mccallum said to me hey work with john knoll who was one of the visual effects supervisors on the film and david you just do on your computers upstairs some of the final visual effects and we did about 115 shots up at the ranch that ended up in the movie. It was shots of uh, Palpatine with his hologram. So it wasn't it wasn't shots with you know Jar Jar in them, but it was shots that had other kinds of visual effects in them. Palp- light, lightsaber right. work, shots of Palpatine in the hologram. There's one shot I remember specifically where, and remember this is about 1998, where Natalie George wanted to change something that Padme said, but he yeah. but he didn't want to go and re-record face they he got a re-recording of padme's voice so what i needed to do was go down to ilm and they helped me shoot another person saying the line from the right angle and the right lighting and i composited in this person's lower face onto padme's character and that ended up in the film and then there was this one really crazy thing that that we did which is now that I'll tell you about it, you'll be able to see it. Um, Anakin, the young Anakin, uh, Jake Lloyd, he, we had a shot. There's a scene where he and Qui-Gon and Jar Jar are at a table 
in uh-huh. the middle of the film, like in they had just all met in on Tatooine. And there was there was a shot of him looking forward, and there was a separate shot of him looking to the side where Qui-Gon was sitting. But they never managed to get a shot of him turning his head. They just didn't think of it. Uh-huh. And and they George needed that because he needed to be able to motivate the cut from looking at Anakin to looking at Qui-Gon. So I used morphing software and created frames that didn't exist of Anakin turning his head. There was probably about 20 frames in there that were never filmed. And it was a complete uh-huh. morph of a head turn. So that was, and that ended up in the film. So there was this also not well-known little period at the end of Phantom Menace's pre-production schedule and production schedule where where my crew did some final visual effects too. I love it. I mean, it's on, your website has about nine minutes of of that footage. And I mean, I've had it kind of just going throughout this. And some of these shots, I'm just like, oh, like, nothing was done to that but then when you're saying all these things i'm like wow like it's just these little tweaks and these little things that had to you know happen which are incredible yeah thanks it was um you know when (laughs) when when john noel and george lucas come to you and say hey are you willing to you know do this and you say yes (laughs) i mean going to previsiting these early shots and then especially moving into attack of the clones which i think saw the success of the Phantom Menace and, and how Previs was really able to amplify their work. Uh, and then Attack of the Clones working so closely again with, with Ben Burt, who was then editing the final piece. And really I'd be very curious to hear because you had such control over what lenses were used and what the shots were going to be like that were then translated eventually in a lot of respects to the final product. I, I would love to hear just the, the selection and the process that you were going through, especially with let's say Attack of the Clones. Well, on Phantom Menace, we were all sort of inventing new things. And we did Phantom Menace for probably the first two or three years. The previs was just me. And then I was able to bring in somebody else to help me with more sophisticated computer modeling named Alex Lindsay. And then I got one or two or three more guys, Kevin and Ryan, who created a company called Atomic Fiction and... Uh, Evan Pontorero, who was a little bit of an expert in Soft Image, which was one of the more character-based previs tools that we used. But it was basically that the previs team on Phantom Menace was was pretty small and pretty bootstrapped. When Attack of the Clones was starting up, George and, and Rick knew that it was going to be a, a much bigger and and more important tool used in the filmmaking. And so I was able to I was able to switch us to more powerful software that was actually the software that ILM was primarily using for their work. And I was able to um, have a, a much bigger staff. I the largest on Phantom Menace, my staff was four people mm-hmm. plus myself. And on Attack of the Clones we went up to twelve. Wow. I was sort of able to do I did a bit of a, a I did a bit of an analysis at the end of Phantom Menace about what really worked in the previous process and what didn't. And one of the first things that happened was we, we needed to be more specific with the cameras and lenses, just like you said. So we, we made sure that our, our lenses matched to the best of our ability what the cinematographer was going to use when he shot the film. Mm-hmm. But previous is always meant 
Previs is always meant to be a blueprint. It's not meant to be the final thing. You don't want to make decisions in Previs and have them 100% locked. You want to give the director and the cinematographer the freedom to change lenses. But you you just want to, the freedom to make creative onset creative decisions. But you do want to be able to make sure that they know if I shoot it the way the Previs is, I will get what I need in order for the story to work. So Previs is always meant to be just a blueprint, not the final thing, mm -hmm. in my opinion. Um, another thing that I, I looked at just procedurally was that there was a – I had a stack of legal pads in the corner, two feet high, uh -huh. that had all of my notes. Every time George said something, I need this ship to move this way, I need this character to do this, I, I wrote the note down and scrambled it down. And I said, boy, this is a really – I, I, I would write my notes. They would be chicken scratch. I'd have to go back and, and, and try and figure out what I said when I was writing and listening to George at the same time. There's got to be a better way to do this. So I was able to work with a programmer at Lucasfilm at the ranch, and we created a database that was across all of our internal computers that tracked every single shot that we did for Previs on Attack of the Clones. Mm -hmm. And there was one one moment where it really, really paid off. I mean, it paid off a lot because we were able to manage things so much better when you're managing a larger team. Everybody was able to come in, click a button, and knew exactly what shots they had to work on that day. At one point, I was down in the editing room with George and, and Ben Burt, and we were reviewing something in a space battle. A spaceship needed to move a little bit more, George said. And I actually had my laptop with me and and wi-fi had really just started to come uh -huh. out then so we had wi-fi wi-fi in in the editing room and i typed the note into the database and hit enter and it changed the status of it so that the i was able to take george's note type it into the database and it went upstairs to the third floor where the previous guys were and they made the change in about a half an hour and sent a new version of the shot down <laughs> So that George was able to ask for a change to a shot in his movie and see it without having to leave the room. It, would, it took 30 minutes for that change to happen. Uh -huh. And and that was a really powerful way that we were able to increase our efficiency on Attack of the Clones. Mm -hmm. So the work got better creatively. The staff got bigger we were using the same technology in many cases that ILM, who would do the final work, was using. We were using, uh, we were more accurate with lenses, and we were able to be much more efficient with our management and our speed. Mm -hmm. So, everything about Attack of the Clones was <clears throat> was a real, real improvement. I had. Uh, one, there was one scene in Attack of the Clones that was really tricky. Uh -huh. It was a scene in which Padme was in sort of a droid creation factory. And it was comp It was all these conveyor belts and, and everything. And it was really complicated. And George had, George had shot a bunch of it based on great storyboards. But it was really complicated and tricky to figure out. And, and, the previous crew was able to do some amazing things with it. And we did a first edit of it. And I remember, um, at one point, the art supervisor at that time, Faye David, she and I had to actually go use all the avids in the building were in use 
except for the one in George's office. <laughs> so we got permission to go and sit at the Avid inside George's office. George wasn't there. Uh-huh. And and sort of edit this sequence together in order to show it to him and Ben Burt. And in the first version that we had that was complete and it was all working, George came in and saw, and I was like, like, oh, we're not completely ready to show this to you yet. We want to show it to Ben. And he said, just show me a minute of it. And I showed <laughs> it to him. And, and he went, wow, David, that really, that really, I was having a hard time figuring that one out. And I think this really saved us. And I was like, I looked at Faye and <laughs> Faye looked at me and we were like, where's the Star Wars making of documentary film crew when you need it? <laughs> it was just, it was a, a really wonderful compliment from George. So, yeah. I mean, that's, that's some of my stories from Attack of the Clones. It was a bit of a blur because we were just working so hard and going so fast. Right. But we did a, a lot of previs on that one, too. I do love that you brought up the Droid Factory sequence because I think that was where a lot of at least Star Wars fans' appreciation and understanding of what was happening in that previous department was was really occurring just because that was added a little bit later. Those were pickup shots and it was kind of like this whole new addendum to the movie that was having to be created very, very quickly as opposed to a lot of the other aspects of that film. And so, I mean, and it ended up being a fun, kinetically interesting sequence and I think is a real testament to what you were describing. So really, really cool. I, I think you're right. My recollection is that it was it originally started out being smaller and George kind of had the idea, was, was having fun with it and realized it could be something bigger and more fun. And that was relatively late in the process. Mm-hmm. So I think you're my recollection is that you're right, that it was a little bit of a I don't want to say an afterthought because it, it, it was a little bit more of a, hey, let's let's take this and make it something bigger because it's really fun. So we had to go about doing it a little bit differently. It was a lot of what we call post-visualization. So previs is visualizing before you shoot and using the computer animation to to design shots. And they're generally all 100% of what you see in the frame is, is digital and in the computer animation software. Post-vis is taking the raw footage that you shot in the case of Star Wars and in the case of that sequence, 90% of the frame is blue screen. Right. And and but you actually have Natalie Portman running around in frame acting to nothing or guys in in blue suits. And we did rough composites where we put in computer robots and computer conveyor belts and tried to do a really decent blue screen key. So it was all the same techniques that ILM would do a phenomenal job at later. We were doing roughly in the course of a couple of hours for each shot to be able to find out, is this shot going to work? Where does it start? Where does it end? What needs to be in the frame? But we, we did a lot of post visualization for, and we, we did some of, we did a lot of that too. Now that I mention it for Phantom Menace, mm-hmm. I, uh, we had to take Jar Jar from one shot and and he needed to be in a complete george george and the editor martin smith were conceiving a different shot in phantom menace where the characters were doing something that they were never originally shot as doing but we we took elements from this shot and put it into this shot we kind of really made everything a a collage there was one time actually where george was saying to martin on the avid hey you know what take that jar jar element and move him further to the left 
at the beginning of the shot and then have him cross frame and end over here. And Martin said, okay, give me a minute. And he started doing that rough composite work in the Avid and said, okay, George, I think we got it. And he, he hit play and it was the day the technology had gotten the better of us. Jar Jar came out of like the water and walked across frame and then flip, flipped upside down and did a circle and got really big. And it was completely like there was just one keyframe in there that was wrong and accidentally sent everything haywire. But I looked at Martin and Martin looked at me and we were both like, shit, do we say anything? Is, <laughs> is, this, is this what George meant? And George just burst out laughing because it was it was just completely ludicrous and wrong. And the day the technology got better with us. And of course, Martin fixed it minutes later. Those those little moments of that kind of stuff was was really fun. I mean, and all the stories you're telling and all the, the things that we as fans have seen over the years is that not only was Lucasfilm and Industrial Light and Magic such an incredible place to work because of the work that it was putting out and the game changing things that it was happening almost you know daily but because of the people that were working there and even the ones that you are bringing up just in you know working with them side by side whether it is you know john noel or ben burt or you know dennis Muir and these people that all of you are responsible for for how movies are made now and i'd be just curious and interested to hear any other stories or experiences that you had working alongside your your fellow ilmers and your fellow lucasfilm employees i mean you're, you're right i act i look back on my time at ilm and and lucasfilm with fondness when i started at ilm it was less than 200 people um and and they were all so nice and so good at what they did and everybody really felt like we were doing something special i mean we were filmmaking always has magic in it we were kind of the the extra magic of the magic in filmmaking and then that got even stronger when i was able to go to the ranch and start work on on star wars prequels everybody felt like we didn't know how the film would end up but we did feel at the time that we were doing something really special we knew that it would be part of film history we knew that we were doing things that were new and had never been done before jar jar was this amazing he was he was the first completely talking main character mm-hmm at least at that level in, in a movie ever. Um, the pod race was massively digital and nobody had ever seen anything like it before the environments that had to be created. It was, it was really fun in every way. And everybody that we worked with was, was really great. And, and as I said, we had, we had no political drama. There was, there was no egos where people were, were fighting with each other because we all were there for the same purpose. And we all knew that, who was steering the ship. It was George, of course. And we all just felt every minute like we were lucky to be there. (laughs) So, so there was a, there was a lot of gratitude. The Lucasfilm July 4th picnic. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Pretty much nobody would go to the ranch from ILM unless you had business there. The ranch was kind of walled off, but um, every year they opened it up to all Lucas company employees for the, july 4th picnic i think it was the july 4th picnic and and george had this part of the ranch that was an open field and 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 everybody from island went there with their families and it was great 
it was wonderful. And for so, they have an egg toss. You know the egg toss where you oh, start yeah. really close to each other and you throw it? Well, for some reason, when they started the egg toss that year, and if you talk to him, you can tell him, you can ask him about this. It's totally true. I was standing next to John Knoll. Uh-huh. And he looked at me and he said, they're doing the egg toss. And he looked at me and he said, okay, David, you and I are going to do this. I want <laughs> you to know, but I want you to know that last year I won the egg toss. Uh-huh. So if we don't win it, it's your fault. <laughs> totally tongue in cheek, right? right? We won. Oh, I love it. I mean, we, I was shocked. We were throwing it. It must've been like 300 feet. It was <laughs> So that's my big claim to fame. Not right. that I used, not that I used the first version of Photoshop, right? Uh, or that I bumped into uh, a movie theater. I, I bumped into John Nolan a movie theater, you know, a couple years ago, where he recognized me. No, my claim to fame is that I won the uh, Lucasfilm egg toss with John Nolan. <laughs> Those are just some great memories I have. The work was we, we were working hard. We were trying to do our best work all the time. Um. But we were, you know, really thankful to be given the opportunity. And, you know, I just was able to work with such people. I was able to walk up to Dennis Murin mm-hmm. at the Jurassic Park rap party and ask him, hey, what do you think is going to happen with digital technology and the concept of truth? And he, of course, had thought about it and gave these great answers. But um, it was just every it was every I was just so lucky to be there. Everybody I was working with was a real star. Definitely, I would love to talk about your work after both uh, Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones, which was, you know, bringing not only Previs into even more of a forefront uh, with POV, but then also your work on, let's say, Journey to the Center of the Earth, which is in its own right groundbreaking, um, and working with J.J. Abrams on things like Star Trek and Mission Impossible. I would love to just delve even more uh, into the career you had uh, post-Star Wars. After... um... After Attack of the Clones, I sort of had developed this previs staff and and at at Lucasfilm that was operating pretty efficiently, and I had made the decision to go down to L.A. and work on some of my own projects and also give provide the pre-visualization technique to other filmmakers besides just George. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't the only one doing it, but... I created a company called Persistence of Vision. We were originally created to work on a film called Titan AE. Mm -hmm. Uh, 20th Century Fox was working on that movie, and they had a problem with some of the action sequences in it. They just weren't working out. And somebody there said, "Um, gosh, what we need is something like the pod race from Phantom Menace. (laughs) And one of the studio executives said, well, why don't we just get the guys who did the pod race from Phantom Menace? (laughs) So... So Martin Smith and I got the call to go to Phoenix, and uh, which is actually where Fox Animation Studios was, and we prevised these th- three or four action scenes for that movie. And eventually, they said these are great, but we don't have the ability to actually do the work in time. Mm-hmm. Can you help us with that? So we actually did the final work as well, and and that kind of got POV started, and POV then. Um, did pre-visualization for a lot of projects, Fox, Paramount, Warner Brothers, Universal. 
Um, one of the calls that we got was to meet with J.J. Abrams because he was going to be hired as the director on Tom Cruise's recommendation mm-hmm. for Mission Impossible 3. And it was a little bit of coming home to me because I had done previs on Mission Impossible 1 right. um, with that train sequence. And J.J., of course, is, is fantastic. He's so sharp and, and has so much taste um, and so nice. So we, I, I had a crew that worked on that, and we eventually did a lot of previs on his Star Trek remake as well, mm-hmm. and did a little bit of work on Super 8 and, and many of his projects. We've probably done previs on 50 feature films now. Wow, yeah. And at one point, we got a call from an old colleague of mine at ILM, a visual effects supervisor named Eric Brevig. And Eric was hired to be the director of... Journey to the Center of the Earth, the remake of that, which was being done in stereoscopic 3D. Mm -hmm. This was the first digital stereoscopic film ever done, and Eric would want me to say that it was also the highest grossing (laughs) 3D film ever done until a small film called uh, Avatar came out. Yeah, I've never heard of that movie, but yeah. It's obscure. You'll have to look for it. (laughs) But it was really great because there's a couple different kinds of stereoscopic cameras and obviously Jim Cameron was <laughs> inventing a lot of the new ones and the better ones. And we were able to use some of those for journey. So we prevised 10 or so sequences for journey to the center of the earth. And it was a very visual he- effects heavy film. So it was really useful to be able to um, do the previs. And then Eric actually hired me as the second unit director for it. Mm-hmm. So, it, it's an example of how I've been very lucky in my career to kind of be on the forefront of, of how digital technology has been used in filmmaking, just kind of in the right place at the right time. My most recent project is a kids animated TV show for NBC Universal called Zafari. Mm-hmm. Um, that's about animals that are sort of born unusually and it helps kids learn to celebrate their differences. It's the first TV show rendered in a game engine the unreal oh, engine mm-hmm. so normally normally you look at um the way behind the scenes featurettes about how computer animation is done and you'll see that everybody's working at their computers and then eventually you'll see the shot of a huge air-conditioned render farm with a thousand cpus that are actually crunching the data and generating the pictures and they work for days or weeks or months at a time to be able to make the digital dinosaurs yeah. with game engine technology we're able to render an 11 minute episode in 11 minutes wow um so that's a a, another example where i've been very lucky to be involved in some of the new technology that goes into filmmaking that's i mean that's incredible if only because i think the possibilities for those like an in-game engine is even being used let's say at um Disney World right now for that Millennium Falcon ride. Exactly. And of course, the Mandalorian has yeah. used the, the digital walls. So yeah. definitely, uh, you know, it's always sort of been the holy grail of, of using digital technology in film and television. The holy grail being to be, be real time. And that would be right. a game engine. And it's, we're, we're, we're just now at it. And it's going to really, I think, be a a fantastic tool to make things better, faster, cheaper, and to be able to come up with new ways to experience. 
media. I, I love that example of the volume because I think we all knew that The Mandalorian was pushing boundaries in terms of how it was being shot, but I don't think anyone realized the extent to which the volume was being used. Like even uh, the great example is Werner Herzog's office in that show. You would have no idea that that was an entirely digital set besides right. a table. Right. Uh, but then, you know, the bonus features come out and you're just like, wow, like the, the work has really transcended itself to a point where it makes it incredible to shoot and i really there was a, a moment in they released all that bonus footage and there was a moment of george on the set of the volume i am very curious to a hear his thoughts on that but also it is a a, a great example of the legacy that he has left starting with with the prequels that we've been talking about he he envisioned that that's how filmmaking would be he knew back in the 90s that stuff like this was was going to happen and if there was another Star Wars project that he himself wanted to do and decided to do, I'm sure he would have pushed it, the the real-time digital wall technology, sooner. You know, he actually wanted to make uh, and did a lot of development on a Star Wars television show, live-action television show. Mm -hmm. And Rick McCallum was budgeting it. But it was pretty expensive to to do television with that much visual effects in it. So I think that that the digital wall technology and the real-time game engine where the, the everything changes perspective according to what the camera's doing, that was probably for him a, a really important moment about, hey, yes, now this can be done the right way. But George has always been so forward-thinking in, in how – and, you know, it, it, it has a lot to do with – George being good on set, but really loving the pre-production and the post-production process. That's where George just was at its happiest, in my opinion. On set is quick. I got to gather the material. But but in pre-production, he's able to create worlds. He's able to create characters. And in post-production, he's able to reshape stories. And you can see it when he goes back to, to make changes to special editions. He just loves being in the art department and he loves being in the edit room. He, um, I, remind, I don't know why that reminded me of, a, of a, another story. When he was redoing New Hope, John Knoll was, was in charge of one part of it, a couple parts of it. But one was um, go and find all the original negatives. And... Uh -huh. And we've we've got to clean it up and, and make a new answer print to strike new release prints from. So we're going to clean it all up and and maybe we'll change some, get the contrast better a little bit here and there and, and clean things up. And there was um, one time when we had to go and view some of it in the ILM theater called C Theater. And it was uh -huh. and it was Dennis, George, me, um, John Knoll, of course, Rick McCallum, and I'm sure Ty was there, and a bunch. Of, and we were just sitting there quietly watching Star Wars, shot after shot after shot after shot of this restored footage. And then there was everybody at the same time went, "Whoa, what was that?" And George said it the loudest, and um, I think everybody just thought it. And George is probably the one who vocalized it. And after going through, you know, a half hour of just shot after shot after shot, there was one shot that was just a little bit less contrasty and a little bit softer than all of the other shots we were watching. And it was the one shot that John couldn't find the original negative of. 
and George just wow. George just instantly saw it, um, <laughs> and it it's just a, a testament to when you're working at that level how good everybody's eye is, but also that the Star Wars projects will forever be George, whether Disney does them or. Um, the great John Favreau or JJ or anybody else. It's, it just lives and breathes George and he knows it better than anybody else. And he's got other stories in there that maybe we can coax out of him at some point. Um, right. That's the dream right now. All it is, is, is the movies he's making in his garage or whatever it is. And he's not telling anyone or, but I'm excited for whatever he ends up doing. And I'm excited for the museum, especially because I think that'll be a great contextualization of everything as well. I know. I'm really looking forward to the museum too. Um, Living in LA, I was really thrilled to find out that unlike other cities, Mayor Garcetti said, "Absolutely, bring it. <laughs> we'll do it." I cannot believe a city would turn that down, right? I mean, like that. I was just you blown know, away that they were like, "No, like, we don't need that." It's, it's not. It's less about the cities and more about a lot of the other groups of well-meaning activist groups. One time, George came to me and said, "David, I need you to do some Photoshop for me. I'm thinking about creating a, another ranch next to Skywalker Ranch. I own the land. It's going to be called Big Rock, and um, there are groups within Marin County that think that this will cause too much traffic, and it will look really bad. So I, at his request, photoshopped what it would look like if there was single-family homes there." a couple hundred single family homes versus what it would look like if there was his new ranch facility. And it was, um, I think it worked because he eventually built the ranch, but it was, uh, just one of the little side projects that we got asked to do to help out with other things that George wanted to do. I did ads for Skywalker sound and post trade magazines and all sorts yeah. of little, all sorts of little Photoshop projects. No, I, I love it, and I mean, all these stories are just solid gold. And so I appreciate the the time and the the effort and, and coming on the show. It really, it really means a lot. And I don't want to take too much more of your time. So, so David, thank you, thank you again for for doing this. It's my pleasure. I really appreciate that you're uh, doing these podcasts because um, I'm listening to them and I'm not only reminiscing but finding out little bits of uh, information that I never knew before. A huge thank you to Mr. DeZoritz for his patience, time, and stories as I edited this episode. He is such an immense talent and has such incredible passion. To see more of his work, head to his website, which I've linked in our show notes. If, right now, you could go to where you're listening to this podcast and leave a five-star rating and a review, it is so appreciated, especially as we head to the end of the year. This Friday, we'll be back on Scener doing a live rewatch of That Day's Mandalorian episode at 7.30 p.m. Central with some very special guests. So head to Scener.com slash TalkingBay94 to set a reminder, and we'll see you there. Until next week's episode, stay tuned, leave that five-star review, and may the Force be with you.